Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host tonight, Dr. Norman Horn, and with me tonight is one of my favorite people that I love to talk to in the liberty movement about science and ethics and everything in between. This is Dr. Mary Ruart, who has been in the liberty movement far longer than me and is one of the people that I look to as a leading figure and thinker in our movement today. So Dr. Ruart, thank you so much for being here. I'm just so excited that you're here with me tonight. It's so great. <laughs> I'm excited to be here, Norm, so that's great. <laughs> well, it's been a while since we've been together. I think maybe it's been at least a good six or seven years since we've actually been in the same room. Uh, we've talked a little bit here and there. One thing that we should say before we really get started is that, you know, our recent book that we put out called Faith Seeking Freedom was very much inspired by your own work and the short answers to tough questions. And I've literally said, and, and you weren't there, but I said this years and years ago that like, I want to write this book for Christians because Mary wrote it, the book for everybody. And, <laughs> and so I think we, we want to start off by saying thank you, Dr. Ruhr, for everything you've done in this uh, regard. Well, you're welcome. I mean, I was called <laughs> to do it, so I did it. And, you know, uh, I just guess you can't not do things that you're yeah. called to do. So just as you were called to start the Institute, so... I would, yeah, I'd definitely say that. So thank you for that. Um, and yeah, so your influence has been pretty, you know, far and wide in my own history. And even really when it comes down to it with libertarianchristians.com and LCI, let's talk a little bit, because so, some people who are maybe newer to our institute and, and to you may not know really what you're all about and what you've done. You have a an amazing history. So tell us a little bit about both your history and the liberty movement and your history as a scientist, would you? Okay, well, I guess my history in the liberty movement started around 1967 when I was in college. And we had, at that time, there were a lot of campuses that had Ayn Rand objectivism groups. So I really thought that the principles she was talking about were right, but I thought they missed a little bit in the compassion area. But one of the, one of the things that I had learned when I was going to Catholic school for 11 years <laughs> was I had learned uh, that, uh, you know, compassion was important. And I felt strongly that I wanted to help the poor, which wasn't something, of course, that I and Rand got into very much. But then I realized 
that if I were to put a gun to somebody's head so that they help the poor, that that was a lot less compassionate than if they just decided to keep their money to themselves. I mean, you know, they weren't putting a gun to anyone's head. So if I'm putting a gun to their head, that's that's not a loving thing. That's not loving your neighbor. So once I got that concept, um, I was full-fledged libertarian. And then after a while, when I was older, I was doing rehab of low-income housing. And what I found out was that I had thought that things like welfare helped the poor. And what I found out is actually encouraged them to make really bad decisions financially. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of young women would come to me pregnant in high school and say, yeah, I'm dropping out when I have the baby and I will get enough to rent your apartment. So put me on the list. And then they would get into that apartment, they'd have their baby, and they'd go, whoa, wait a minute, Um, I can't make it on this welfare check, it's too small. But if I have another baby, then I will get more money and all will be well. So they'd have the second baby. And then, of course, they realized, whoa, that's not enough either. So they'd have the third baby. And then by the time they were 21 and did not have a degree, you know, didn't even have the high school diploma, they realize, wait a minute, if I'm on welfare, I am going to be poor all my life. And so they wanted to get a job, but they had three kids, right? And they have no high school diploma. So the entry level job they would be able to get wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have any childcare for sure. So they were kind of stuck because unless they had a family member who take care of their kids, they couldn't get that job. And then of course, once they, the few that were able to, that did have family members were able to keep in that job and keep getting promotions. And finally, of course, they were they were in a place where they could afford childcare and they could get out of the poverty trap, but that wasn't usual. So most of them were stuck forever. And I realized how that so-called help that the government was giving them was actually destroying them. And that didn't used to happen before the welfare. Before that, churches, you know, or groups that were very charitable would kind of screen people and give them what they absolutely needed, but had expectations. And the expectations Mm -hmm. might include doing some volunteer work or helping others or or something, you know, so it wasn't quote a freebie (laughs) and it didn't tempt people to do something that that was going to hurt them. I'd say 90 to 95% of my tenants that were on some type of aid were able-bodied. They could have gotten a job. They could be in the workforce, but you know, they didn't because they were tempted when they were young to accept this handout. So that was very sad. So that really helped you to realize just how the economics of it all played into compassion in the first place, which is, you know, pretty doggone important, you know, even to, even as Christians realizing that the efficacy of things such as welfare coming from the state is ineffective. So, okay, that's one part of your story. You know, at the same time, you were also developing yourself as a professional scientist. Yes. And so how did what did you end up doing in that regard? Okay, so I got my bachelor's in biochemistry in 1970, my PhD in biophysics in 1974, and then I did a postdoc in St. Louis University's Department of Surgery. They taught me surgery. I taught them biochemistry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We collaborated, and so that was kind of a really interesting experience for me. Then I eventually became part of the faculty there, assistant professor of surgery, and then went on for 19 years to the Upjohn Company, 
which was in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and of course was a, it's now been absorbed by other pharmaceutical firms, but it was a great experience. It was, you know, a very ethical company. And I did learn to the impact of FDA regulation, which was actually quite shocking. My first my first big revelation when I came to the Upjohn company was I could not figure out how any drug ever got FDA approval because <laughs> it was such an onerous pathway and the FDA kept changing its mind about what it wanted. And, you know, and of course, what what ended up is after I left there, I I started seeing studies that came out about the pharmaceutical industry and I was able to show that the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act, which gave the FDA its teeth and really made the regulations just kind of blossom every year, so to speak, um, that those regulations were shaving five to 10 years off each of our lives. Yeah. And, and so I wrote the book Death by Regulation. My earlier books were libertarian books. Um, as you know, um, mm-hmm. I wrote Healing Our World in 92, really to share the libertarian message with Christians, New Agers, environmentalists, pragmatists, the people that libertarians aren't so good talking to sometimes, environmentalists, right? Yeah. So that's that's why I wrote that book. I felt I could come from a different perspective than was current at that time. And then, of course, short answers to the tough questions was where I had, a, I think, a 20-year column with the Advocates for Self-Government and tried to you know, really have short answers <laughs> because people don't want to listen to us talk for two hours about a particular point that might be very interesting to us. Yeah. <laughs> they just want the bottom line. So I tried to tried to do that. But Death by Regulation, which is your latest book, if I recall right, unless you've written something else that I've that which no, I wouldn't be surprised. Yet. But, <laughs> but de- that, that is a that is an awesome book. It just blows the lid off of the, any argument whatsoever that the FDA does a decent job and. If I recall right, it was getting published before this pandemic hit. I think it was 2018. Yes, uh, uh, let's see. Been, yes 2018. Yeah. 2018, I, 2017. I guess I'm I'm not sure. I don't remember now. <laughs> I, yeah, it's been it's yeah, it's COVID kind of has made time distort and make us all weird. But I, I remember pre-ordering the book and was like, oh, this is gonna be good. <laughs> and it's amazing. And uh, and in fact. One particular chapter, and I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head, and I don't have it by me, but makes some just awesome statements about infectious disease. Two reasons why it kind of caught my eye is that one is that I've been, of course, ensconced in the area of infection prevention for the last four and a half years uh, in my company and uh, kind of coming up to speed on a lot of different aspects of clinical practice and how we can assist in that as engineers and designers and scientists uh, that are not necessarily you know, medical practitioners. But then also the note about the pharmaceutical side and the development of new antibiotics and new antivirals, which at the time, even before the pandemic, I also had some experience in the design of devices and processes that would assist in the rapid production of such things, which would enable things like rapid prototyping of molecules and things like that. Truth be told, that's just the technology side that, you know, we can do as scientists, but the regulations of it were just striking. And realizing that it was the 62 amendments, and I'm going to misquote you horribly here, but um, noting that things like in the 80s, 
you might have had somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 40 new antibiotics receiving clearances from the FDA. Comparatively, for a decade and a half in the 2000s, only seen like five. I mean, and, and it was just, it was utterly striking to me. It's like, wow, no wonder we can, you know, Mary was saying that we could easily be shaving five to 10 years off our average lifespans because of the lack of development of new drugs that really can correlate and is attributable to the actions of the FDA. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So this is me getting excited because I get to, I get to <laughs> demonstrate to Mary that I know what I'm talking about now. And, uh, but no, does that also ring true to you in particular now that this pandemic is, has been, we've kind of gone through it and uh, we're hopefully coming out the, at least in America is at least coming out the other side. Yes. Well, it's happened quite a bit, not just with antibiotics, but with antivirals. I mean, HIV, for Mm -hmm. example. Oh, yeah. But the reason it does is because if you are, especially with antibiotics, well, the thing about antibiotics is you only give them for a short period of time, two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. That's very different than if you're giving them for a lifetime or for decades, right? Right. In terms of the amount of return you would expect on your investment. But every year, the FDA increases the number of studies that companies have to do. What that means is the cost of getting an FDA approval is going up exponentially. And what that means is that anything that's just given for a short period of time rarely, if ever, can recoup the cost of the FDA approval. Yeah. So companies aren't making antibiotics anymore, um, even though there's a great need because a lot of the antibiotics that we have now, you know, they have a lot of bacteria that are resistant to them. So mm-hmm. in staff, of course, especially staff in the hospitals is a very big problem because it's resistant to so much. And so it, we really need those things. And that's true with antivirals, too, um, to some extent. Yeah, and it just seems like that by increasing the cost, it just absolutely reduces the amount of kind of prior investment that you're willing to commit to a certain type of therapeutic treatment that when you expect, well, when you, you know, you want as early as possible, and this is, you know, this happens in any capital type company, right? That you're going to, you want as early as possible to come up with some measure of like expectation of what your ROI is going to be down the line. How much is it going to cost me to research it? How much is it going to cost me to develop it? How much is it going to cost me to get it out there? And so the the more that, you know, that the government interposes itself between the doctor and patient in making decisions about how to use something that a company puts out for a pharmaceutical type of treatment, well, then doggone it. No wonder we see this rising cost of medical care. No wonder we see people that get sicker over time. Well, and actually, if you plot the cost of what we pay for a new drug at the pharmacy mm-hmm. against what the cost of an FDA approval is, it tracks together. <laughs> In other words, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it should. You know, that's economics, right? And yeah. that's the way it works. So most drugs today don't recover their cost of FDA approval, and the whole industry is yeah. starting to rely on blockbuster drugs, yeah. which is really scary. And doesn't that kind of like you know, run against like, or, or maybe confirm in some sense, the narrative out there that like, well, these drug companies are making all this money on one drug. Well, <laughs> what did you expect? Like they've kind of, I mean, it's kind of like, well, any, any, anywhere like a, in capital investment where say like in venture capital, 
they invest in 10 different things and hoping that somebody gets a 10x return. Well, that's right. Plus, most drugs are failures. In other words, Mm -hmm. maybe one out of eight or nine drugs that actually enter clinical trials, in other words, testing in humans, make it to get an FDA approval. So most of the cost of getting a drug to market isn't the cost of developing that particular drug. It's the cost Mm -hmm. of all the failures that lead up to putting that drug on the market. So there's been this big um, debate in the medical (laughs) journals about what it really costs to put a drug out. And the people who have included the drugs that have failed get criticized. They're told that their work means nothing because somebody else goes out and they just measure one single drug. And of course, it's not, they don't account for all the failures that happened leading up to that. And, And so really... The industry has gotten pretty unsustainable because you really can't rely on blockbuster drugs. So the result of that is that when I was in the industry, they had scientists making the decisions and the scientists Mm -hmm. would make the decisions not based on cost so much, but on the excitement that they had in getting some new product out. But the problem is as these regulations grew, we saw those scientists replaced by people who are what we call beam counters, uh, people <laughs> who were looking at the bottom line when I guess you need to do some of that or the company would fail, right? So, yeah. but now, you know, so we went from being told that we could develop drugs that didn't have patents to being told that if the drug didn't have a patent, we couldn't develop it. And then, of course, we had to do a approximate profit analysis before we could even develop that drug, no matter how good the drug was, no matter how strong the need, if we couldn't show that it would sell for lots of money, we couldn't develop it. And I, it was one of the drugs I was working on that fell into that category. I mean, the FDA actually called me up and said, oh, Dr. Ruart, we're so excited about this new patent you have for prostaglandins and liver disease. And we're going to do everything we can to help you get it out because there is nothing for liver disease, right? Well, even with the FDA having that attitude, you know, we still had to follow the regulations. And it turned out that, you know, when you have something really new, Mm -hmm. you cannot predict what the dose is, how many times a day you have to give that dose, how long you have to treat the patient. You know, if it's never been done before, there's a lot of unknowns. And so if you, we, we figured out if we didn't guess right every time on all these unknowns, these studies, which take years to do, would be so long that if we didn't get the statistical significance that the FDA wanted and we had to start over, we wouldn't have a patent by the time the drug was ready for market. And, you know, that would just be impossible to recover the cost of our FDA approval. So we didn't do it, even though the FDA was that excited about it. And there really was nothing except bed rest for these poor people. Yeah, it, it's astounding. And by the way, that is one of the stories you tell in Death by Regulation. So yet another kind of plug for that, uh, which is awesome. Yeah. Again, it's such a great, it's a great book and well worth reading for anybody with an inclination towards understanding medical science. And by golly, I could go on like a long time with this sort of topic because believe you and me, like I've gone deep on a lot of these sorts of issues more so than most people know with respect to drug development and process development like this. It's really interesting to see a lot of the the interesting scientific advancements that have tried to kind of bypass some of this stuff. But you realize that it's like it's throwing 
even as cool as those advancements are, such as, you know, drug screening via AI of molecules in order to try and, you know, reduce the domain size of trying to develop new types of molecules to get to better medicines more quickly. It's like, well, you know what? Like there is definitely, maybe that should be done anyway, but that's also capital advancement or capital expenditure that could be actually used for developing the actual drugs people. And so, you know, it, it's really frustrating to see that in action and be like, these are really cool scientific advancements. They're also entirely the product of the way in which government has intruded upon the medical profession and the pharmaceutical profession itself. And uh, what an under, it's a really underappreciated point, really amongst not just scientists, not just libertarians, but I mean, pretty much everybody out there. Uh, with right. Respect. I mean, if you're not, yeah. if you're not in the industry, how would you know? Yeah. How would you know this stuff? It's not, it's not out there in any way, which is why I wrote Death by Regulation, yeah. because I figured that this is something the public should know. It's not what they think usually. It's just not what they think. And the scientists, the best of the scientists, we don't always know about the regulatory side of these things. That's We're right. busy doing other stuff. And the people who end up doing the regulatory stuff aren't always that good scientists either. Uh, I'll just uh, so note uh, uh, my interactions with, say, the EPA in this regard. Uh, <laughs> and uh, with no other explanation. Uh, but, but yeah, you get the idea. It's not the best and the brightest on that one. <laughs> but I've, I've had some interaction with them too. So yeah, it's, it's pretty painful. It's pretty painful. I'll have to tell you some stories sometime. And uh, but anyway, but this all comes back down now to you know what we have all experienced in the past. Well, you know, just over two years now. This is you know this is March 2022. Two years ago, almost not quite to the day, was when we got into the the two weeks to stop the spread, uh, and uh, and and the rest is now two years to stop at least something. I'm not sure anymore, um, but you know we can easily see how much these ideas kind of trickle into the experience that we've had over the last two years. Like I said, you know, what you wrote so well in Death by Regulation was that like, we have no idea what we are missing in terms of the golden age of health. That's Now, that is a phrase that you use. If the government were not basically, for lack of better words and pardon my French, but screwing us over, <laughs> you know? And, and it just goes to show it's like, we should have prevented this from happening in the first place, the pandemic, that is, with better technology, you know, from the outset. What's your kind of perspective on this? Like, what do you see that all of the missteps and things that have gone on, what's been your experience through this pandemic and, and your kind of insight into the, the inner workings of everything? Well, of course, I paid attention to what the FDA did. And one of the first things it did was in, I think it was in late January, mid-January, it said, no private organizations can make COVID tests. Only the CDC's tests can be used. What a brilliant well, move. <laughs> yeah, so for two months, we had no tests. Yeah. And the reason we didn't is because the CDC's was flawed. Mm -hmm. In fact, the scuttlebutt is <laughs> that it was contaminated. And if that is, in fact, the case, what that means is that the CDC wasn't able to do basic laboratory safety control, which is yeah. scary. So finally, when the CDC's test was just totally, it was totally becoming the laughing stock, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Then the FDA said, okay, we can have private enterprise make the tests. And of course they did. And all of a sudden we had a number of tests. But the one that seemed to come out on top 
was the PCR test. Right. And that was kind of strange because even the inventor of the PCR test said it should not be used the way you guys are using it. And part of the reason for that is the PCR test cannot detect the intact virus in your nose. What it does mm-hmm. is detects some of the fragments. And even then, it can't do it without some type of amplification. Right. And the more amplification you do, you get to a certain point where you're getting a lot of false positives. And that point is at about 30 cycles. And most of the PCR testing was done between 30 and 40 cycles. Hmm. Uh, At 40 cycles, a positive test has something like a one in five or possibility of being a true positive. So in other words, 80% of the people are going to be um, isolated or have to stop going to work or do something and they won't, you know, they won't be productive during that time, but they're absolutely okay. And they aren't going to spread the virus to anyone because normally it is very hard for an asymptomatic person to spread the virus, even though the government was saying this was happening a lot. Scientists a little farther down the road looked carefully at that data and said, no, it doesn't happen very much at all. And the reason is if you don't have a high viral titer, how are you going to spread it? So it kind of makes sense. You don't have to, I mean, it's not, not rocket science, right? It's pretty simple logic. So that uh, really had thrown people for a loop because if you were asymptomatic and you could pass the virus, then there was this all the, all this, stuff about, you know, distancing six feet, even though it had never been demonstrated that that worked, Uh, wearing masks. Well, viruses are very, very tiny. Yeah. So like a cloth mask isn't going to do much. And even a surgical mask, it gaps. You know, it's really hard to get that mask to fit perfectly. Sure. So in fact, just to show how crazy all this stuff is, the CDC put out a paper saying that, you know, in the title, basically that masks were effective against COVID, you know. And all the news agencies reported this. But if you actually read the study, yeah, I did. <laughs> they found that by and their their methodology was pretty flawed. But let's assume it was okay. Okay, so it was um, saying that it did prevent two percent of the spread. Now, two percent is what we call significantly yes. uh, <laughs> correct, but insignificant clinically. So, you know, in other words, it doesn't make a difference. So that was really scary. And I say it's scary because if you think about it, we required masking and, you know, there's some dangers to wearing masks. Um, First of all, the masks themselves get contaminated Mm -hmm. and they give you a false sense of security. And even the OSHA people started talking about this saying, this is not what we recommend. So they, they, you know, the ones that had done studies on these things. So it was really kind of, it was one government group against another government group. And, and, you know, there just wasn't good, good science behind it. In fact, that's been the problem with this whole COVID thing is there's been very questionable science. And part of the reason is the censorship. If it didn't fit the government's narrative, it was censored. And I've actually talked about things like this to other groups and had my YouTubes taken down. (laughs) So don't be surprised if that happens. You know, I'm just 
See, telling it the way I see it um, as a scientist. And of course, I'm not perfect. So I could say things that maybe aren't accurate, but I'm putting that right out front. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm perfect, right? Yeah. But it, I do, I did pay attention to this because I was shocked when the Pfizer vaccine was found to be 95% effective. Why? Mm -hmm. Because no coronavirus vaccine has ever been very good. In fact, our flu vaccine is not very good. It's only usually in the neighborhood, maybe if you're lucky, about 30% effective. So 95. So I actually read what Pfizer had submitted to the FDA and what they were claiming. And I only had a summary. I didn't have the full data set that's coming out now. But um, and basically what they said is we don't know if this stops transmission or infection. What we do show what this 95% means is that if you do get COVID, then you have a 95% of having lesser symptoms mm. than the people who don't have a vaccine. But even that's not quite right because in that report, they had only analyzed about 200 patients in their 30,000 patient study mm -hmm. that had symptoms. But there were another, if I'm remembering right, 3,500 patients that had symptoms that they never tested uh, with the PCR test. Not that it's a great test, but it's something. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, the editor of the British Medical Journal looked at this and he said, I'm calculating about 17% efficacy yeah. if you actually use all the people, you know, and you assume that everybody who had either the vaccine or was in the placebo group had COVID when they got symptoms. Okay. I did the same calculation. I came out with a slightly higher number, but I, you know, the data set was kind of in a way that you might have, you know, you could misinterpret a few here and there. So well, what was the reason um, for throwing out that many subjects in that case. Yeah, Usually there's some know. reason for exclusion, but, but, but... I don't know, but maybe we'll find out because, okay, yeah. so there was a Freedom of Information uh, request mm -hmm. from to the FDA that all the Pfizer data be, be released. And the FDA initially said, no, it's going to take 55 years to yeah. release it. And Which then is... they changed their mind and said, oh, no, 75 years. Well, think about it. That means everyone who got the vaccine... Uh, by the time all this data is released, is going to be dead or dead. you know probably yeah. pretty old, and and uh, then they were sued by the group that had the ICANN group, ICANNDecide.org. Mm -hmm. uh, they were sued by them, and uh, the judge said, "Yes, that's ridiculous. You're going to release all this data by the end of the summer." So the first data dump is there. It's fifty-five thousand pages. Um, so, and you are invited <laughs> by this group to look at the data and see, you know, what you think about it and maybe pick out some stuff that the ICANN group is going to miss because that's a lot to work with. So if you go to ICANDecide.org, uh, you can, or ICANN.org, I think it is actually, mm -hmm. but anyhow, you can find it. It's right okay. there. And that's the beauty of it. If I have misspoken. I will send you a link to, <laughs> to your listeners there. We'll make sure. We'll make sure that that yeah, happens. Make yeah, make sure you get a chance to check it out. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of you wonder when people don't, you know, when the FDA is so hesitant to release mm -hmm. the data, you might think something's wrong. And in fact, the preliminary data that I have seen suggests that more people died in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group during the study. And the reason was 
um, heart problems. Oh, that's, and okay. myocarditis that we're finding now, because it's not just in teens; it goes all the way up in men mm-hmm. to age forty-nine. And it's using the VAERS data system for the analysis. The CDC has done this analysis. And the VAERS system is so underreported that most people think that you have to multiply these numbers either by 10 or 100. There were two separate studies. They came out with two different numbers. But okay, but you may, under- you may need to kind of explain that, though, because, you know— Okay, sure. Uh, I can do Some that. of that is is tricky to kind of remember and, and understand. Is a, you know oh, what know. what is the okay, VAERS system? How does that how does that calculation work? Let's go. Let's kind of delve into that real quick. Yeah. Sure, sure. So the VAERS system is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Right. So the CD it's the CDC's way of keeping track of problems with drugs and especially in this case vaccines. Mm-hmm. My understanding is there is an app out as well that people can report to, but I'm only talking about the official VARA system, which is usually reported into by healthcare workers, usually, mm-hmm. not always. Uh, you know, an individual can report. But then they have to substantiate the evidence and so on. Yeah. Yes, and the, then the CDC follows up and they call and try to figure out if, you know, the report is, is credible. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been two studies to determine how much people actually report because healthcare workers are mandated to report, but it's very time consuming. And, you know, Mm -hmm. these people are busy. So basically what the first study found is that only one out of 10 adverse events were reported. The next study found that only one out of, you know, 99 events were reported. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends how you want to want to, which number you want to believe. Okay. Or, or maybe something in between, or maybe something a little outside that range. So the study that I'm talking about by the CDC looking at myocarditis showed that if you were a male between 12 and 49, by the time you took your second shot in that range, the number of people who would get myocarditis was many times greater than the number who would normally get it without a vaccine of any kind. So the number, I think, uh, uh, was about 40 for Mm -hmm. the highest age group. And of course, when you think that this number has to be multiplied by 10, you know, or even maybe 100, (laughs) it's kind of scary. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, for um, a young person, for a teenager, the chances, uh, there's another study out, the chances of being hospitalized for COVID are much less than the chances that they will get myocarditis. Yeah. So for the younger people, not a good bet because younger people really don't very much die from COVID for whatever reason. And yet they could get this myocarditis. And, you know, we talked a little bit about what what that might be. And the reason might be that when we get... Um, the COVID vaccine, we are not getting a measured dose of antigen. We're not getting a measured dose of spike protein. Yeah. What we are getting is the instructions for our body to make the spike protein. But everybody's body's different. So everybody is going to make a different amount of spike protein. And, you know, young people are, well, they're young. 
they're healthy. They're, <laughs> they don't have as many problems. Cells are well operational and yeah. Yeah, they're gonna... so they're probably making lots of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, so since the spike protein itself is toxic, mm-hmm. um, you would expect that young bodies that make lots of this stuff could could be compromised. And that is probably what's happening to some degree. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. Well, it's interesting, and this is more of a scientific point than liberty-wise per se. And But like the data does suggest that, that men are far more at risk, young men in particular, especially than that kind of that 12, like mm-hmm. 10 to 25-year-old range because they're bat- their bodies are very active. They're still growing. There's a lot going on there, hormones, everything, you know, all of that. But women don't seem to be affected nearly so much. And in fact, there's some... In those, in those columns of data, there's even some, shall we say, that, that the data would be split. In that. Like it, it doesn't look like there's any right. dif- significant r- different risk per se. Right. But why would women be different? Well, because I think from what I've seen, it may be linked to testosterone. Okay. So yep. women do have some testosterone in their bodies, but mm-hmm. they don't have as much as men. <laughs> so, yep, right. Yeah. So that could be, that could be it. And then uh, I think that's, a reasonable, a reasonable starting point to figure out what's going on. So for the, the brilliant researchers who I'm sure are listening to our program, you know, maybe trying to do some studies about the uh, effect of testosterone on, say, you know, spike protein production in a body using an mRNA virus would be pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> let's go. <laughs> would be, yeah, yeah. So, But the narrative here is just wild because, like, you know, you're suggesting that essentially the the powers that be are putting forward a story like this is the answer and everybody needs this. And with a pretense of knowledge that we have not seen, you know, heretofore, <laughs> and I think almost any era of medical history, uh, which is remarkable. And it's like, even if you're 90% of the way there, like the hubris of it all and the it is really is really striking. Um, and and, it, and I think it leads to this sort of polarization effect, politically even. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to break through that. So is that the same sort of thing that you've observed? Or how would you kind of describe it perhaps differently than, than my mere mind? So. Yeah, well, you know, 
people want to know that the vaccine's safe and effective, and the government has essentially been advertising that. But yeah. the government of New York actually was very explicit about putting that message out. And this was before the FDA was giving anything other than an EUA. Mm-hmm. And so... Emergency use authorization. So yeah. They actually got sued and, mm. and lost in court and had to retract that because, well, if you know anything about drugs, then you know that no drug is perfectly safe for everyone. Yep. No drug is perfectly effective for everyone. In fact, the FDA used to uh, have a... And I have a screenshot of this many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I had a screenshot of the website saying the FDA says, you know, we make sure drugs are safe and effective. They had to take that down because... (laughs) False claiming themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in fact, the FDA itself is not safe and effective. So it actually flunks its own criteria, (laughs) in my opinion. And that's what death by regulation was all about. But that's a whole other story. Okay, so the problem is the EUA could not be given to the vaccines if there was anything else that could help treat the disease. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, why, you asked me why, why they came down so hard against things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which kind of make the cell a little leakier than normal. Okay. And then zinc can get in and zinc will kill the virus. So this is why if, if it, At least this is my understanding, is if you want to have those things be effective, they have Mm -hmm. to be given early, not like a week after you have symptoms, but, you know, when you first start getting symptoms. Uh, And so, you know, that was one of the big suppressions that happened early on was with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and really anything else that helped. And I've seen a chart of about 20 or 30 different compounds mm-hmm. where are, there are multiple reports in the medical literature saying that they are effective against COVID or against um, another coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty impressive list, I must say. I was like, oh, I didn't know some of this other stuff I was taking just to be healthy was, was on that list. Um, and then they rated according to how probable it is that these are real results. So yeah. it's, it's kind of an interesting... And it kind of like... Just emphasizes that, you know, perhaps the answer on some level to, you know, a novel virus that's potentially zoonotic or whatever that is suddenly, you know, raging in the world is improve your personal health. I mean, exactly. that's something. You know, the government missed <laughs> yeah. a big opportunity yeah. to tell us to quit, you know, quit being overweight, yeah. cut out the sugar, um, yeah. eat fruits and vegetables, you know, and, and get out in the sun and get your vitamin D because people who get COVID. And have high vitamin D levels survive it much better mm-hmm. than people who don't. And this is this is so accepted in the medical literature that there's no question about it anymore. Yeah. And then some things you might not think about: melatonin helps block the virus from coming in. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some things you wouldn't normally think about, right? There's some pretty strong evidence that that helps. So there's things you can do, you know, if you want to try to prevent it. And I do, I mean, I have not had the vaccine. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get COVID. It doesn't mean I'm not going to die from it. <laughs> but one of the things I was concerned about, I've had a lot of cancer in my family. I've been, a, I'm a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, some of these things aren't tested, the vaccine's not tested for more than a couple of months. I was concerned about the impact 
on my immune system being challenged mm -hmm. with a spike protein and also, I mean, things we don't know, right? And I don't get the flu normally. So I figured, okay, I don't have comorbidities anymore. I mean, I'm cancer-free right now, yeah. so I should be okay. And, you know, of course, I could be wrong. <laughs> but um, so I decided not to go that route. And, you know, I made sure my vitamin D level was high and all that good stuff. And it's, it's very interesting that the government missed this big opportunity to scare people into getting healthy <laughs> rather than scare people into taking a vaccine that really hasn't had much testing. And now the data is coming out that the spike protein, whether it's attached to the virus or it's in the vaccine, affects at least three genes that are cancer suppressor genes. Hmm. And it doesn't let them suppress anymore. It inhibits them. So, and I, my brother-in-law um, had a very slow growing cancer or so he was told he got the vaccine and was dead two months later, mm. which really was kind of strange, but I mean, I can't say it's due to the vaccine, but you know, there's now that we see this work with the cancer genes, uh, it's, it's scary. You know, there's, and I've heard oncologists say, that, you know, they are seeing patients in remission come back to their office full of not just the cancer they had first, but other cancers as well, and how unusual this is. Time will tell. This is this data. I wouldn't say it's preliminary, but it's starting to come out in the medical literature. So it's uh, it's something to be concerned about. Yeah, and it just, again, kind of goes to show that this proffering of this particular vaccine as the panacea, you know, it may be right for some people. Yes. But it, it may be wrong for some people too. And it and it's up to, you know, perhaps it may be a bit much to say like, well, everybody should be at the level of Mary Ruard in terms of being able to personally assess all of this data. But we do need to have a measure of mindfulness about our own health and about what our own personal histories are. Yeah. And all this yeah. stuff about trying to just we're going to look toward this one thing. And then this one thing is somehow this is going to be the solution. And then we'll all, it'll all be over. It's like, no, no, guys, no. that's where the censoring, the, the mixed messaging, the false humility, the hubris, I mean, all of it mixed together makes for just this really awful and hopefully once in a lifetime that we ever see uh, promulgation of bad ideas. Yeah. It really is kind of hurt to watch this happen to me, just on the basis of like everybody going at it with each other and can't seem to have, even have adult conversations anymore about like, like <laughs> about what's going on. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, I mean, the scientific way is to debate these things. Yep. And you know, basically, uh, when you take distinguished physicians off, now I'm, Dr. Malone, for example, who was, mm -hmm. <laughs> he was one of the people who invented the mRNA technology. When he's coming out and saying, there are some dangers here, we need to pay attention to this, this, and this. Um, and he gets taken off YouTube and he gets yeah. censored and he, you know, Incredible. loses his affiliations. This is, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, this is the guy who knows about the technology, right? We should be paying attention and at least saying, okay, well, let's test it, you know? If he's wrong, okay. Yeah. But, you know, not to let him say things that are important is, is you know, that's just not good sign. Yeah, it's just madness because if this guy's a scientist. If he says, well, all right, we need to look for this, this, and this, and then we find out that this, this, and this are all wrong, 
<laughs> well, then he's going to admit it too. <laughs> because exactly. as scientists, we go to the data people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, I do like one thing he said recently in, a, in an interview. He says, uh, the truth is like a lion. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to defend it. Just let it loose and it'll defend itself. And I, I really yeah. think that's true. I think the truth will come out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of hard to keep a secret anymore, even when... You know, you get shut down on social media or YouTube or whatever. There's other ways to use the internet to get the word out. Yeah. And so, you know, the truth is out there now. That's the beauty of today. So yep. I think maybe some government agencies don't like that part. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but shortly after the CDC uh, put out this chart that I showed you earlier about the myocarditis, mm-hmm. that's about the time that you started hearing all the talking heads say, well, we'll have to live with COVID. You know, they they stopped pushing the vaccine quite as hard and started, you know, saying, well, you know, we're gonna have to live with it. It's gonna be, you know, it's gonna happen. And really, if you think about it, we don't even know how many people really died of COVID because the PCR test was used. And if somebody came to the hospital and had something else wrong with them mm-hmm. and they got a positive PCR test. They they were diagnosed as having COVID, and the hospital got extra money for that, right? Yeah. So they're going to say that, right? So so there's been over reporting of COVID cases because of the incentives that the government put into place for hospitals. Why did they do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean it, that's it, I mean we know that that's the case, but do, don't you also think though that like, well, all right, there's but there's also the the excess death counts you know, do seem to point to like, okay, yes, there's all these collateral damage cases, which we have written about that. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. No doubt. But I'm not sure that even that accounts for all the excess deaths. And uh, time will tell. Time will tell. Because, uh, you know, there are papers that came out early on about how many extra people were dying from uh, home heart attacks that they normally would go to the hospital for. They weren't because mm-hmm. the hospitals were saying stay home, right? Because we need to keep the hospital open for COVID patients. So, yeah. um, so like the numbers are pretty high, 23 to 28% increase in um, deaths mm-hmm. at home from heart attacks. That's high. Also, I don't know if you're aware of this, but cancer treatment and, di- oh, yeah. and, and diagnosis stopped, right? So like my brother-in-law, when he went in for his cancer treatment, he was told if you had come in two days later, you would not be treated oh. because they were shutting down cancer treatment in that hospital. Goodness. But yes. And, and, um, and then, of course, if you don't do ultrasounds, if you don't do um, diagnostic mammograms, if mm-hmm. you don't do all the things you do to detect early cancers, which is the whole secret of treating cancer, then you're going to have excess cancer deaths. Now, yeah. what other excess deaths are there? Well, of course, there's been increased suicide, um, increase in mm-hmm. alcoholism. Uh, but of course, how are these going to add up? We don't know yet. And I don't. I think the, the really difficult factors, we'll never really know how many true COVID cases we had and how many were yeah. false positives from the PCR test, right? So, because on average, about one out of three, maybe 30% or something, that's what it looks like to me, at least, um, were probably false positives. So if mm. it's really that high, then we've got some problems. There are studies coming out now from the pediatric hospitals where they're saying something like 
I've seen several of them, but they all kind of are in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% of the children who have a positive PCR test do not have COVID. They have no symptoms. Oh, wow. you know? So it's, it's really, in fact, they were going to dump the PCR test. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but they didn't. I don't know why. I thought they were supposed to dump it in January, but they changed their mind. Or maybe I heard the wrong thing. I'm not sure, but <laughs> well, is it possible? Yeah, hard to say. Possible? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the sad thing, the, one of the sad things, most people don't know this, is if you're injured by a vaccine, whether it's a COVID vaccine or something else, you can't sue the company. Mm-hmm. You have to go to a special vaccine court that's run by the government. And the government has decided it was after, you know, this happened like I think in 84, it was established. And so what ended up happening is they were paying out so much money that they decided that there were certain cases they wouldn't hear anymore. And so depending on where that is, which ones those are, parents can't go and and take their case to vaccine court. And as far as I know, they haven't heard COVID cases yet. So a lot of these poor people who have side effects from the vaccine, and let's face it, any vaccine is going to have side effects. doesn't matter if it's COVID, doesn't matter if it's another one, you're going to get side effects. It's a biological product. Those are the the most likely drugs to have side effects. Mm -hmm. These people are, you know, they're out of work, they're suffering, they can't get any compensation. And of course, going to doctors to be treated is expensive. So, and and a lot of the doctors don't even believe them Mm -hmm. that they have a reaction to the vaccine because the vaccines are, have been touted as being safe and effective for everybody. And that just, you know, it just isn't scientifically possible. Yeah. It has been a mess to observe it. And so as we kind of draw to, you know, kind of toward our close here, how would you, you know, encourage the libertarians who are looking at this and trying to discern like, well, how, what can I do to not just be more informed, but just to talk to people better about this? And uh, what would you say to, to those folks out there? Well, that's a real good question. I think the biggest concern right now are vaccine mandates. Mm -hmm. So the government is trying to mandate the COVID vaccine. The companies want to put it on the schedule and have everybody get it. And some of the pressure for that may be off, but there's been a big backlash on that. People who are vaccinated don't want to have a mandate Mm -hmm. because they don't want to be mandated to take these boosters every six months, right? Right. (laughs) They got sick. They kind of got pretty sick when they took the vaccine, maybe, you know, but didn't feel good. They don't want to go through that again. And they certainly don't want to have to go back every six months. So mm-hmm. plus where there is risk, there must be choice, right? And yeah, and my body, my choice. So there's a lot of people that are against vaccine mandates. Now, if the libertarians would come out in front of this really hard, they would find they have a lot of collaborators who want to work with them, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you pull together to fight something, you're much more likely to listen to the opinions that your colleagues have, right? So everybody can kind of see that would be involved in that movement, that vaccine mandates, you know, are a violation of your rights. It's Mm -hmm. a violation of your choice. And like I said, it's over 50% of the people, at least in the U.S., who don't want them. So if, if the libertarians were able to get out in front and join these people, then what they would have is as an excellent recruiting ground. <laughs> it might be the biggest opportunity actually we've had to grow the party. Because if you think about it, once a person 
wants liberty over one particular choice in their life, it's much easier to convince them that, you know, you might want choice elsewhere too. So <laughs> that would be, that would be the, uh, the way I would think about this because it's a little depressing. The vaccine mandates means that the government can tell you what you get injected into your body. That means they have total control over you. Yeah. You know, if you've done any medical anything, you know that drugs can influence you very much. Mm -hmm. So if they can inject you with whatever they want, it's really a hard thing to fight. You know, you really, you can't just be, oh, I'll be strong and I won't succumb. Well, it doesn't work that way because the neurotransmitters in your brain tell you something else. Yeah. Well, that's, I, th I think that's, that's a good way to, it's a good way to kind of close out here because what we all ultimately want is a world where we don't exert force over each other like this. That is the world that, you know, the only way to heal our world, per se, beyond what we believe as Christians in this regard, is to stop beating each other up over everything. <laughs> and yes. whether we're talking about our personal health or the war in Russia and Ukraine right now, or just about what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis on our streets here at home, that's the type of thing we have to face. And this is, you know, so I'm, Again, I'm really grateful that for you to, you know, for your work, first of all, for the influence and uh, importance that you've been to me personally as a growing scientist and libertarian and for, uh, for being on our show here today. So thank you so much, Mary. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about, let's, let's review, let's see, say your books again sure. and your website. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, well, my website is down right now, but it's going to be up <laughs> shortly. We got hacked, you know, um, oh, no. so I had to... Yeah, I had to rebuild. Um, so my but my website is ruart.com, mm -hmm. my last name, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. And I'm on Facebook. I actually have two Facebook pages. One's a fan page and one's just a personal page, but they're actually both libertarian pages. So yeah. go there. And uh, I am also on Twitter and Instagram. Also, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you just go to YouTube and search for Mary Ruart, you'll see a bunch of videos of mine. And of course, you can always reach me at my email, mary at ruart.com. Again, mary at ruart.com, my last yep. name.com. And if you do that, though, I do get hundreds of emails. So it would be a good idea to put something in the subject <laughs> line like, Heard you when you were talking to Norm Horn <laughs> or something like that so that I know it's not spam because I look at the subject line and I look at who sends it. And of course, I might not recognize your name, but I will recognize Norm's. So. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much uh, for being here, Mary. I do appreciate it. And uh, we're wishing you all the best. I can't wait to see you in, in Texas or at another convention sometime. And, uh, you know, until then, well, we're wishing you all the best. So thanks thanks once again for being here. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that your listeners are having a really great day. All right. Well, that has been our episode tonight, folks. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.